Well, the year was 1992. It's October 14th, 1992. I remember where I was that day. Some of you probably will too when I tell you what happened on October 14th. It was the Atlanta Braves versus the Pittsburgh Pirates. National League Championship Series. I know I use a lot of sports metaphors, so after this one I'll lay off for a while. I'm sorry, but uh, it was National League Game 7. Came down to Game 7. The Atlanta Braves were on their way to becoming a, you know, the team of the 90s, America's team. But before that, they were horrible. They were awful. They were a really bad baseball team. I remember going to those games when I was a kid in Atlanta, and uh, no one would be there. There would be like a thousand people at Fulton County Stadium. You could buy cheap seats for a dollar and then sit behind home plate. That's the way it was in Atlanta in the 80s. But in 1992, the Braves, game seven, bottom of the ninth, the Braves are down 2-0. They managed to score a run. There's only, then there's two outs, and there's three men on base. The bases are loaded, and uh, it would come to pass that a pinch hitter would come up to bat. The guy named Fernando, oh, what was his name? <laughs> I should have written it down. <laughs> Francisco Cabrera. I know somebody remember. Pinch hit, he pinch hit for the pitcher. He came up. Uh, an aging Sid Bream was on second base probably in his mid-30s with a bum knee, and the rest was history. I managed to piece together, I had to get the radio call, I had to get Skip Carey calling it, because that's the only way to hear this uh, play that, that shook down, uh, and then we, I juxtaposed it on top of the video, so there's a little bit of a delay between the two, because it was a radio call, then this is the, the TV you see, but um, just to relive this, this moment in 1992, so check this out. on those girls with the hairstyle to let anyone not from that wasn't alive in the 90s to know that the struggle was real. It was real. Uh, I think I'm pretty sure I had a bowl cut. Uh, I wanted to be like a skater even though I didn't skate. Ladies, you with the bangs, right? You might have the bangs in the perm. Am I rocking that back in 92? Um, but yeah, if, you know, if Sid Bream, it was close, he was safe. If, if he had uh, not, if he gotten tagged out, I mean, it game over it would have been over. There'd be no victory, no celebration, nothing. There'd be no, no culmination of anything. 
And today we're going to look at the ascension of Jesus and that it really is representative of the ultimate victory and culmination of the entire salvation work of God. If you see like first base is Jesus' uh, birth, second base as his, his, death, his life and death, the third base is his resurrection, and then the home plate is the ascension. I mean, without the whole thing, you don't, you, there's no victory. There's no celebration. It's all equally important. And so this is why we see it in the, the Apostles' Creed that without that, you don't, you don't see the full picture, the full story. So this is the line we're going to look at today from the Apostles' Creed, that he ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And see why it's so important to include this in the creed. Um, so as we've done every, every week, we stand and we read the Apostles' Creed together. Uh, you don't typically do that in contemporary worship services, but we have for this series. Because um, it's good just to hear us proclaim this out. This is what we believe. This is who we are. This is the eternal, timeless truths of who, of who God is. This is what we have received and what we will then pass on to the generation after us. That uh, we don't need to make this stuff up. It's perfect the way it is. So let's stand and affirm this together with one voice this morning. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So it's, it's what you would expect. If Jesus was born of a virgin... And if Jesus is God, God's not going to stay dead. He's not going to die the way people would always die. You can't kill God. If God dies, we all die. So you can't expect Jesus to die in this way. It makes sense that he was never going to stay on the earth physically forever. That he would have to go back to where he came from, where he has always been before time began. And without the ascension, you, don't, you can't have the resurrection. I mean, they're both equally important. They feed off one or the other. And we see Luke 24 is the passage where we get this story of the ascension of Jesus returning to the Father, returning up to heaven, starting in verse 44, Luke chapter 24. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So He's really saying, too, hey, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, as we call it, it's, it's authoritative. It has a purpose. All the words have a meaning, and God breathed inspiration behind them, and they must come to fruition. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And that is exactly what would happen. You are witnesses of these things. And see, I am sending upon you what my father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. He's prophesying, of course, about Pentecost to come. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. 
And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. So Jesus is ascended. He's returned to heaven. And he's at the right hand of God the Father. And so what's he doing after that? What's happening? What, what does scripture tell us about after the ascension? And it gives us three real titles that you'll see in your book if you're reading along with us, uh, with that Tim Tennant book. And they're the three titles of prophet, priest, and king. That he is fulfilling those roles as now our ascended king and prophet and priest. So the first is prophet. In the Old Testament, prophets would deliver a message and they would wait. They would wait. There would be a time for the people to respond. If you think of Jonah and preaching to the people of Nineveh, there was a time where they had... There was a period of time for the people to respond to that message of repentance, and they did, as we see in that story. So that's what prophets would do. They would proclaim a message, and then there would be time to respond. Jesus is the ultimate prophet. He's not a prophet. He was so powerful in his, his witness and his proclamations on earth that people thought, hey, this might be Elijah back to life. This guy is something else. But no, he's not just that. He is the prophet, the ultimate prophet. And he has done the same thing. He has proclaimed the message of God, proclaimed the good news of forgiveness of sins, proclaimed the resurrection of the body, proclaimed eternal life to all that will believe, and now he is, in a sense, waiting. That's an imperfect word for this situation in English, but it's the best we can do in our language. He's not subject to time as we are, but that, in a sense, he is waiting for people to respond to that message, just as the prophets did in the Old Testament. And he's not just sitting on his hands, but that he has equipped and given us power to proclaim that message to all that will believe, to go forth with our hands and our feet and our words and our time and our talents and our witness and proclaim this good news of forgiveness of sins and, and, and eternal life to the whole world. So he gives us that task. It's like that old cliche of saying to God, God, why, don't, why doesn't everybody believe in the gospel? And God looking at us and saying, oh, I was going to ask you the same thing, right? Sort of like he's equipped us to do it. He believes in us. He, he uses people, imperfect people, to accomplish his will. And he's waiting. He's waiting to, to do that. Now, why? Why is he waiting? It's grace. It's grace at why he waits. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to live. That's God's heart. We see this in 2 Peter uh, chapter 3 where Peter tells us this, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. I mean, I've thought this before, like, Lord, why haven't you come back yet? Why haven't you returned yet in your second coming? And there's probably a bigger answer to that that I can't possibly fathom, but one of them is, is that God is love, and he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to live and to live with him. So it is all grace, if that, is, if that is true, if Jesus is waiting for all to respond. The very breath we're breathing right now, the life you live and I live, it is grace. It is grace that he waits for us. He's patient with us in our disobedience, in our unbelief, in our faithlessness. If there's someone you know or you're that person, God is being patient with you. He's pursuing you in his grace. He's waiting for you, in a sense, to come back to him. I would not be who I am without that grace. And I'm sure many of you as well would not be who you are if God had not been patient with you and is being patient with you in his grace. In the book of Hebrews, 
chapter 10, the author of Hebrews also touches on this idea of waiting, where it says that he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of God. You see this language, of course, in the Apostles' Creed. And since then has been waiting, quote, until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. He's quoting a book of Psalms, a chapter of Psalms. So in a sense, he's saying Jesus' victory has been assured. It's already happened. There's no point in holding on to your sin that you committed yesterday. He nailed it to the cross 2,000 years ago. It's finished. You don't need to be flagellating yourself anymore about it. He forgives you. Now, you need to maybe not repeat that again and continue to work on that, but there's no point in clinging to stuff that he's already paid for, that he's already forgiven you for. The victory is done in the eternal spiritual world, but not everybody sees that. Many are still fighting. We have not surrendered. We still have arms up in rebellion. But the war's over. He's already accomplished the task on the cross. He's, he, he, the enemy has been defeated, but the, and not everybody knows it yet. There was a Japanese soldier in 1944 named Hiru Onoda, and he was assigned to an island off the coast of Philippines. And he was an elite intelligence officer, well-respected, and he continued to fight on the island of the Philippines even after the war was over, even after the nation of Japan dropped leaflets on the island saying the war is over in Japan, he would not believe it. He would fight against island police, and when he did that, he saw that as the war was not over. He just could not, he had not been relieved of his duties by his superior officer. So he continued to fight. Everything that would happen would cement his belief that the war was still happening. And unbelievably, Hiro Onada continued to fight until the year 1974 on that island off the coast of the Philippines until a history student in Japan named Norio Suzuki tracked this guy down to tell him the war's over. You can come home. And he would not. He said, unless my commanding officer relieves me, I will not leave my post. Talk about dedication. So this history student tracked down his commanding officer, who was amazingly still alive, brought him out to the jungles and said to him, here he is, and he relieved him of his duties. And a weeping Onada surrendered. And he went on to live in Japan until his death in the year 2014. Isn't that an incredible story? It's crazy. And the world today is in a similar situation, that Jesus' victory has been assured. He is risen. It is finished, Jesus said. But many are still in rebellion. We're still fighting the war that is over, that he has accomplished it for you and for me. He has been ascended and sits at God's mighty right hand. That's why throughout the New Testament, you can see the Apostle Paul say things like, your battle is not against flesh and blood. That's not our battle. That's been accomplished. Our battle is against powers and principalities and unseen things that we battle in prayer. That's why Jesus didn't wage war against Pontius Pilate or the Romans, because that wasn't his purview. He knew that that was done. That was not his focus. That once he was going to accomplish what he was going to be accomplished, the war was going to be over on the spiritual realm. So he knew the battle was about over. So Satan and his demons, they're scrambling for the past 2,000 years to divide, accuse a lot, uh, destroy, murder, 
and bring as much rebellion as they can in this world until he does come back. And that's precisely what they do. And people on earth, we're still in rebellion to the gospel. We're still indifferent, as I said last week, to what we hear about Jesus and the good news of love and forgiveness he offers. But as our prophet, he simply is waiting for all to come to repentance and live, as we see in the scripture. So he's our prophet, and he's also our ascended priest, our ascended priest. Now, as maybe many of us know, a priest typically is just an intermediary to stand between the people and God. You see it in the Catholic Church, the Methodist Church, we don't call ourselves priests, but a minister still fulfills the same role in that we are an intermediary. When we're serving communion, or yesterday I did a marriage ceremony, you're that intermediary between the covenant of God and the covenant of this new family being formed. And so Jesus is our ultimate in- intermediary. He's the fulfillment of the Jewish priesthood, a perfect priest. The, the bishop of the Methodist Church, Will Williman, tells a story of visiting a woman in the hospital who was dying of lung cancer. She was gasping for breath. She was barely hanging on to life, he said, as I walked into her room. And she was holding on to a crucifix because she was Catholic. And it was Jesus on the cross. She was clinging to it that a monk had carved out of wood. And, and she's holding on to this crucifix. And he could tell that she was not long for this world and, and said to her, can I pray for you? Or even better, can I summon a priest to come and do the last rites for you? And she said to him with her gasping of breath, she said, no, thank you. I already have a priest. I'm holding on to him right now. So she's almost a Protestant, really, <laughs> in that way. But still, she, the point is clear. She's saying, I already have a priest. It's Jesus. He's, he's my ultimate priest. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the Jewish priesthood. The Jewish priesthood up to that point would atone for the, the tr- men of the tribe of Levi, would walk into the Holy of Holies. They would leave a sacrifice on the altar for his own sin, and then for the sins of the people, once a year on Yom Kippur. See, Jesus doesn't have to do that anymore. He doesn't have to atone for his own sin, because he doesn't have any sin. And he doesn't have to do it over and over again, year after year. He has done one sacrifice for all time. The, the priesthood of the Jews would enter a temporary, holy, physical place. Jesus enters into the throne room of God, permanently. The, the priesthood has to sacrifice for his own sin, as I said, Jesus doesn't have to do that. He is undefiled and without sin. The, the Jewish priesthood would offer sacrifices for uh, sin that had really had no power to take away sin. But Jesus' gift of his body and his blood is the perfect undefiled sacrifice to take away the sin of the world. You could read a lot about this in Hebrews 7 and 8. I'm going to read a little bit of a lengthier passage from Hebrews 8 right now because it just gives us this beautiful picture of Jesus as higher and better perfect ascended priesthood. Hebrews 8 verse 1. Now the main point that we were trying to say is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Again, you see this echoed in the Apostles' Creed. A minister in the sanctuary and the true tent that the Lord and not any mortal has set up, an eternal temple for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They offer worship in a sanctuary, I love this, that is a sketch and a shadow of the heavenly one. For Moses, when he was about to erect the tent, was warned, 
See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But Jesus has now obtained a more excellent ministry. And to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been erected through better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would be no need to look for a second one. But because it was faultless, we have a new covenant as we celebrate every, well, we do the first Sunday of the month with communion. So it's amazing to think that Jesus lived for 33 years on earth physically, and yet now on our time, he has been, a, he has been intermediarying for us as our priest for over 2,000 years. He has been our high priest since then for his church. And he is, he is this is important, it's very important, because a lot of people could see Jesus, Christianity, as sort of like uh, an, an addition to your life, that Jesus isn't really essential Good thing to think about. Good guy. But he's not essential. But when it comes down to our human condition, he is essential. He's not optional. Without him, we cannot atone for our own sin. He is our priest and our sacrifice. That he is given his body and his blood for your sin and mine. He is essential to our lives. He should be central to who you are. Because without him, we have nothing. We have no access to the Father. We have no access to eternal life. We need a mediator, and he is our perfect mediator and priest. So we have prophet, priest, and king. The word king comes up a lot in scripture. Again, it's an earthly term. It's the best we can do with what we have. I think his title is something far greater than that. The book of Revelation says he has a sash he wears, Jesus, and there's a name on it that nobody, can, that nobody knows. I mean, there's a title to him that is even greater than just the word king, but that's what we can do. You see the word king throughout the New Testament, that this is ascribed to Jesus, who he is. He is our risen, ascended king. The term right hand, he's at the right hand of the Father, it simply means that it's a place of authority and power, that Jesus isn't just sitting on a throne with a scepter, just sort of twiddling his thumbs, waiting for things to happen, but that actually the ascension is more of Jesus and not less of him, but that because he is ascended, we now have his presence with us in the power of the Holy Spirit, that he is, he's no longer hindered by space and time, but that he can be everywhere, anywhere, all the time, whenever he wishes, and that in this regard, that it says in the book of Daniel that the Father or the Almighty One has given him all dominion and authority and power, that there is no one higher than Jesus. Amen? There is no one higher than who he is. I mean, we can't really fathom that. We think, oh, there's someone more important than me on the hierarchy of things. There's no one more important than Jesus. There's no one higher. There's no name that's greater. There's no authority that can trump his. Everything falls short of who he is. You see the lordship and the kingship of who he is everywhere in our world, if you're paying attention. Why are the birds singing outside? Why are there stars shining in the heavens? Why is there beauty and majesty on the earth that he has created? Even though it might be fallen, sinful people, he still has made a beautiful planet that is also a sketch and shadow of what is to come. Why are all these things so gorgeous? Just because? They point to him. They point to his majesty and his authority and his glory to the king of all creation. And the Bible says that the fool says in their heart, there is no God. Even wise men, even some of the most powerful men in the world and women, 
if they are wise, they will take a knee before the king and the Lord of all creation because they can see I'm not in charge. I had a privilege, a deep privilege, in the year 2007 when I was working at the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association with my wife at that time. And don't, don't think I'm too high and mighty, okay? I was, I was a part-time associate, and my job that day was parking. I was just pointing people in to where they were supposed to go. So that was my job. So what was happening that day was their opening what's called the Billy Graham Library. If you've never been to that, I highly recommend you go. It's totally free. It's amazing. It's on Billy Graham Parkway in Charlotte. So my job that day, they were going to dedicate this building. They're going to open it up. So all these important people were there. The governor was there. The mayor was there. Joel Osteen was there. Michael W. Smith was there. And Clark Chilton was there. <laughs> pointing people into parking spaces. But there were bigger people names than mine that were there. There were all the living presidents of the United States were there. So there was secret service everywhere. If you've never encountered these people, they are all business. And they are jacked. Some of these guys are huge. Um, there were snipers in trees. They had perimeters set up around the whole thing. I walked by some of those guys. They didn't look me at me at all. If I, if I had the badge on, that's all they cared about. They just saw my badge. So they're getting ready to do, have this um, you know, presentation in the big tent. We're all sitting in there. And the, the guy that's uh, in, our, in charge of us says, hey, all you parking guys, you guys stay in the back of the tent. Like, you guys get in the back of it. You can be here, but go back there. And I remember thinking, I'm not doing that. This is like once-in-a-lifetime situation. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to creep over to the wings, and, and i got to get close. I mean, I want to see these presidents up close. Like, I, this is, I'm, I'm not going to be in the back of the tent. So that's what I did. I walked over to the side, and it was all good, and there was no problems. And and George Beverly Shea and Cliff Barrows got up, these wonderful men of God. They were probably like 98 years old at that point, 98, 94. They got up and they sang, How Great Thou Art, all right? And, and there was not a dry eye in that place. You could feel God's presence in that tent that day. It was powerful stuff. And, and then all the presidents got up, and they began to share about uh, their, their, really their, a lot of their love for Billy, uh, their deep friendships they all had for many, many years, I mean, at this point, Dr. Graham is probably uh, 90, 94, 95 years old. He's a very old man. But they were, they were really showing their love and affection for him and also talking about their faith, and it was a, it was a powerful experience. And then Dr. Graham gets up, and he, he wonderfully said, I feel like I'm attending my own funeral, which was great. It's a great line. But see, there was something more happening that day. Did you have a picture? Did you show it already? Was we were praying as these most powerful men in the world. They were not just taking a knee to Billy Graham. They were taking a knee to the king. The king of kings. These men all have faults. All politicians definitely do. But they are not fools. They were taking a knee before the king. They knew there's a God, and it's not them. And they knew the king is truly in charge. And you see, even in moments like that, they're pointing to the king, the king who is ascended. And the Bible tells us that one day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, that he is king. And it won't be a have to. He's not going to forcibly make anybody want to do that. It's going to be a want to experience. Everyone that 
everybody that wants hell, they choose it. God doesn't throw anybody in hell. It's a place that you're already oriented toward. He doesn't want you to go there, but it's a place everyone in hell wants to be there. Everyone in heaven, you want to be there. It's a choice that we have. So every, and when every tongue confesses, every knee bows to his lordship and kingship, it will happen one day, either now or later. The book of Philippians chapter 2 tells us this. And being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So you see this echoes the Apostles' Creed here. Therefore God also highly exalted him to the ascension in this language and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, someone who's not a religious person, maybe you're not a Christian or something like that, you could hear this sort of language and go, this sounds really out there. How could there possibly be this sort of kingship or lordship outside of the earth? But think of it this way. Just as there's hierarchy of authority here on earth, why wouldn't that be the case after this life is over? It makes perfect sense. That if there's some, even as flawed order as there is here on the earth, there has to be perfect justice and order after this life. And that it all comes through him. The book of Colossians tells us that all things were made by him, and he holds all things together. He tells us this. And that one day, all of creation will bow before this ascended king, prophet, priest, king, It is mercy and grace to be aware of this truth, my friends. It is grace on this day that he waits. He's patient with you and me in our disobedience. He's patient with you because he loves you. He loves everyone. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to live. And probably the greatest line or word or prayer you could pray is Jesus, just give me Jesus. It's like, it's like really the one thing I know at this point in my life. That without him, it all falls apart. If he's not in charge, no one's in charge. And I know it's easy to look at the world in which we live and go, it doesn't seem like anybody's on the throne. It seems like God is an absentee landlord. And that's tripped people up over their lives. It makes them not want to believe in God. But here's what I would remind you. Do not look at the suffering. Do not look at the death. Do not look at the chaos. God hates it as much as we do. And it will not last. It will end one day. He says, I'm returning, and I will make all things new. I will make all things right. I will shed it. I will dry every tear from your eye, and I will make all things new. New heaven and new earth. This is our hope. And it is not a hope built on empty promises, but it is a hope built on the eternal promises of God's word. So let's pray together. Lord, indeed, Jesus, we run to you, we cling to you, and we thank you that in your nail-scarred hands you freely will receive all who put their hope and trust and faith in you, our prophet, our priest, our king, our ascended Lord. What a mercy and a grace, God, to know this truth. And we pray for all those, Lord, that, that don't know that. I pray they would know that we're not any better than they are. 
We're all recipients of this grace that transforms and changes us. God, let our prayer be this day and tomorrow and on the day of our passing and after. Let our prayer be, Lord, just give us, just give us Jesus. At the foot of the cross, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, black nor white. There's no more division. We all are one in what you have accomplished for us. Thanks be to God, our ascended Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.